Ben Gelder, that's a Dutch name. Uh, when my grandfather came over from Holland, our last name, I don't even know what it was, but it was difficult to pronounce. And a lot of people coming from Holland, uh, Gelder is the largest province in Holland. Van is the word from, from Gelderland. And they changed their name to Van Gelder. <laughs> then, so anyway, I became a Van Gelder. And uh, if you go to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and you look at a phone book, there are more Van Gelders than there are Smiths. There's just a, a lot of us. And uh, anyway, no big deal. But uh, do, do you know why the Dutch wear wooden shoes? Keep the woodpeckers off their heads. I, I grew up in a small farming community in Iowa, a Dutch community, and uh, yeah, Wait, did, did you know that Iowa has a whole month less winter than Minnesota? <laughs> I love Minnesota, but man, I sure wish we could have a change of weather, man. Anyway, do you know what you have to have if you go to Iowa? Enough money to get back or get out. Yeah, and then this is standard, but the greatest thing to come out of Iowa, 35W, yeah. <laughs> As I, whoops, who put that stool there? <laughs> hey, uh, yeah, as I start out today, I, I, I want to I, I wanna focus on something that's really important uh, uh, in terms of our Christian lives, if we're going to be authentic followers and true followers of Jesus Christ, this is really important, and that's your mindset. What is your mindset? What, what, how do you perceive yourself and yourself living in our world and in our universe? What's that look like? I'll show you a verse, Proverbs chapter 23, 7, for as a person thinks in their heart, so are they. How do you perceive of yourself? How, how do you, you see yourself in relationship to the world and universe around us? Let me show you Ephesians chapter 4, 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by sinful or <coughs> desires, I'm sorry, deceitful desires, and be made in the new, in the attitude of your mind, mindset. And to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. In terms of our mindset, there's a, a word in the New Testament. Uh, the word in, in, it's, it's in, in Greek, it's pronounced um, exousia. Kind of try, try to say it, exousia. It's the most powerful word. It's the most dynamic word in, the old, in all the Greek language. It's often translated authority. Uh, authority. Now, 
The Greek word for power is dunamis, dunamis. We get our English dynamite from it. You can hear the similarity. But, but Azusia is way more important than that because Azusia is not only authority, it is the authority coupled with the power to accomplish it. It's a really, really big deal. Matthew chapter 28, 18 then Jesus came to them and said, all authority, Azusia, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I am placing that on you, and I say to you, church, go. Take back the planet. You understand this? Let me go over to another verse that has exousia in it. John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right, exousia, to become children of God. You can't translate exousia in the English language. There's no equivalent to it. And so, yeah. You, you know, we, authority is not bad, but uh, like in this verse, for those who have received Jesus, who believed in him, we have what? Authority and power to declare ourselves, take hold of, I am a son of God. Yeah. yeah. Do that with me. Okay. First the men, then I'm going to do the women separately. Okay. Okay. Say it with me. I am a son of God. Okay. I am a son of God. And now women, I am a daughter of God. Yeah. You have been given the authority coupled with the power to accomplish it. Um, one more verse. Luke chapter 10, 19, I have given you authority, Azusia, to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples and to the church, I give you Azusia, power and authority. Are you afraid of demons? You shouldn't be. Because you have authority and power over them. It's yours. You carry that. You, it's in you. It's on you. It's around you. You are invited to storm the gates of hell, knowing they will not stand against you. In the Greek, the end of that verse, it has actually three negatives. It's the strongest way you can say something. And what it really says is, no, I say not one thing will harm you. You're carrying that. You are carrying that. You know, we're, we, church, 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 we're not losing the battle. <laughs> you know, everything is not going to hell in a handbasket and in, fight, in spite of the turmoil in, in, in the world. You know, we're winning this thing. Yeah, okay? What, what the American church just, you know, for some reason... We just have developed a, a mindset that kind of has not taken hold of what we're carrying. But anyway, let me show you the diagram. I do this every once in a while, okay? This is a diagram of world religions, okay? Christianity owns more than a third of the planet. 
And that was done in 2010. It's even more so now. We are not losing. Yeah. December 25th, 1991. That is the year the Soviet Union broke up. Uh, before, you know, during the Soviets' rule, they had taken many churches, closed them down, and turned them into government buildings. Um, and when the Soviet Union broke up, that ironclad hold let go, and no, Newsweek magazine printed a picture of a church. It was kind of a country church. It had been turned from a church into a government building, and now it was turned back into a church, and there was a sign on the front lawn that said, and the lamb wins. I love that. I love that. Now, everything I've set up, to now has nothing to do with the morning message. <laughs> but no extra cost. So Now, okay, who knows what feast Jesus was celebrating with his disciples on that last night? Passover. Yeah, you got it. Luke chapter 22, uh, verse 7 forward. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large up a room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. Now, question is, okay, in Jerusalem, there's only a couple of places where you can gather water. The whole city, you know, had, you know and, and so Jesus says to, the, you know, Peter, John, go follow the man with the water jar. Well, how'd they know? I mean, there would have been hundreds of people taking water. How'd they know who to follow? Women normally carried the water. When they found a man, that was unusual, and they knew who to follow. We sometimes worry that God, you know, can't take care of the details of our lives, but it's just not true. <laughs> he is concerned, and he can take care of the details. Do you remember what the Passover feast was about? It goes all the way back to Egypt when the children of Israel were slaves to the Egyptians. Um, and God called Moses to deliver the Jewish people from slavery. Moses, when God called him and said, you know, I want you to go to Pharaoh and tell him he is to release my people. And, and Moses says, wait a minute, what if Pharaoh won't do that? And God said, if Pharaoh doesn't do that. I'm going to bring plagues against the Egyptians so that Pharaoh will let my people go. That's the story of the book of Exodus. I mean, God brings the plagues of turning the water into blood, plagues of frogs, plagues of gnats, plagues of flies, plagues of livestock dying. 
boils appearing all over people, hell, locusts, darkness. Those nine plagues were all plagues against the Egyptian gods, actually. And then chapter 11, verse 1 says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and after that he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. <laughs> God is going to send the angel of death through the land, and the, and the angel of death will bring death to the firstborn in all the houses of all the humans and all of the animals. Now, God gave Moses special instructions for the feast the night before the angel of death passed through the land. Each family is to take a male lamb, they're to slaughter it. They're to save the blood and smear the blood on the doorpost, the two side doorposts in the head of the house. And Israel, on the night before, they were to take, after the lamb, they would repair the lamb for the feast and they were to eat it and to stay in their home and not go out. Um, when they celebrated, God said, I want you to celebrate this with great joy. I mean, think about it. These people had been slaves for 400 years, and they are about to be set free. God says to the people, tomorrow you will be set free from 400 years of slavery. What would have that celebration been like? Now, think about it. There's some pictures created by the Passover feast. Remember, the Passover feast was celebrated. Um, the Last Supper was what Jesus was celebrating, rather, with his disciples. Someone has said it was nice that they all decided to sit on one, sit on one side of the table, so the picture turned out. You know, in the original Passover, before the, the feast happened, the celebration happened before the event. They were celebrating something they were about to experience. Many, many have said Holy Communion um, is like a Christian Passover feast. Um, now, take note. Uh, that's why we say the, let's celebrate Holy Communion. Let's celebrate the Lord's table I mean, think about it. Israel, Israelites celebrated the Feast of Passover the night before the event, the night before they were actually set free. Jesus introduces Holy Communion before the events that are celebrated there, therein. Uh, Israel celebrated their freedom from slavery in communion. We celebrate the forgiveness of our sins, and we celebrate the freedom that we now have over the power of the sin nature. The lamb's blood on the doorpost and the header protected the house and the people living in it from the judgment of the death angels. He passed through the land. The blood of Jesus in communion protects us from God's judgment against sin. There's another part of communion, the Lord's table experience, that, that we sometimes overlook because Jesus said, okay, he took the cup filled with fruit of the vine. He said, this is my blood in the new covenant. The new covenant. 
The old covenant was given at Mount Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments, but Jesus says, I am entering you now into a new covenant. The new covenant has better and eternal promises. In communion, we, we celebrate what we call the Christ event. The greatest event ever to occur on planet Earth <laughs> occurred that first Easter, Good Friday and Easter, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we have... You know, we, in evangelical Christianity, we have this cross focus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, and remember that the cross is only half of the story. Half of the story. Jesus' body is put into the tomb. And on the third day, an earthquake happens. A stone rolls back, and Jesus walks out of the tomb alive. <laughs> the Christ event has two parts to it. There's the cross, yes, but there's also the resurrection from the dead. In communion, we have two parts. The body, Take, eat, this is my body. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live to righteousness. By his stripes we are healed. Jesus takes all of our sins and all the consequences of sin. So that not only, see, not only in communion are we celebrating the forgiveness of our sins, but we're also celebrating the healing that comes over us because we are part of his body because we're a part of his body. But there's the other part of it. You see, this is my blood in the new covenant. The new covenant means that not only are your sins wiped out, not only are your sins blotted out, but in the new covenant, your history is totally rewritten. Totally rewritten. that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Now, let me just think about this for a second, okay? You know, because it's a Christ event. Both sides, are, both sides are absolutely essential. I have to have the cross. I, I have to have the cross. My sins have, there's no solution on earth apart from the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, and I need to be... I, I'm dead without it, right? But the cross is only half of it because Jesus walks out of the tomb alive and he says, because I live, you will live also. The resurrection is not just me, it is also you. It is also you. Now, think about this just for a second. Think about this with, with me, okay? Jesus is sometimes called the suffering servant, okay? And that for sure you know, he walked the earth and it was that, but, but especially on the cross. Now, how long did the cross last? Six hours, yeah. Nine o'clock in the morning till three in the afternoon, that's when Jesus dies. And, and his body's put in the grave and he, he, you know, is in there for three days, but he doesn't stay there. <laughs> he walks out alive. And the resurrected Jesus is now king of kings and lord of lords. And how long will he be king of kings and lord of lords? How long? Forever! 
I hope you're getting this. It is so key for us to know that our, you know, at the cross, our sins just aren't forgiven. In communion, our sins aren't, just aren't forgiven. In communion, there's a new covenant, and that new covenant rewrites my history and rewrites your history. One of the clearest uh, pictures of this is in the Corinthian, the letters to Corinthians that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swizzlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. Are you getting this? And that is exactly who some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. <laughs> and we say hallelujah to that one. Now, fast forward, go to the second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness, yes, Please put up with me. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ so that I might present you as pure virgin to him. And he says, Paul says to these former wicked, sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, prostitutes, homosexual, homosexuals, Thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanders, and swindlers. He said, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were cleansed, and the power of the Holy Spirit has set you free. And I am, and I have a godly jealous for you because I promise you to one husband, to Christ, that I might present you as pure virgin to him. You, you know, it is so easy for us to not take hold of redemption for the largeness that it is. It's way bigger <laughs> than most of us live out. Because in redemption, God does not just blot out our sin and forgive our sin. In redemption, God rewrites our history. Are you getting this? In the New Covenant, Jesus now rewrites our history. He recasts it from its broken ugliness so it now produces beauty and righteousness. You being redeemed is not just about being forgiven. It is also about hope and joy and abundant life. It is about a whole new start and a whole new you and a whole new life. Welcome to the New Covenant. <laughs> I got, a, I got a fun one. We're going to go through this. This is, uh, I'll give you, you know, there's a fair amount of history involved in this. But, uh, okay, it starts out, Matthew chapter 1, 1. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 have the genealogy of Jesus. 
Now, most of us, when you get to that point, we just skip it over. There's a lot of names that are hard to produce or hard to pronounce. And so, yeah, anyway, okay? Now, Matthew's genealogy. The reason the genealogy is absolutely key is, you see, Jesus has to be a descendant of King David. He is David's greater son, or he's not eligible for the throne. He, he, Jesus came. I mean, he is our Savior, I know. I mean, I've I got to have a Savior. He is our Savior. But, you see, you, you know, <laughs> but he's not just your Savior. He is also your King. Yeah, yeah. that's who he came. He came to be king. <laughs> and that's why the church, that's, you know, the Great Commission, we're involved in helping him take back the planet. I'm getting lost. Okay, let's go back. <laughs> Genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hizan, Hizran, Hizran, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Ahimadad, and Ahimadad, the father of Nishon, and Nishon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, and Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Do you know that in all Old Testament genealogies, not only Old Testament, but in ancient history, that no woman is named? In any genealogy. No, never. You just, you just, male, you just name the male descendants. That's, what, that's how genealogies are formed. What are these four women doing in this genealogy? I believe that Matthew is doing us one great favor because he is going to demonstrate to us the power of redemption and how God's redemption rewrites our history. Tamar. Tamar, she married Judah's oldest son, Ur. But Ur died. And under Jewish law, a brother was to marry his, the widow of his brother if he died without producing offspring. And so he was supposed to carry on the family name. So Onan marries Tamar and he dies. <laughs> and there's a sordid story around that. It's all, this is all recorded in, in Genesis 38. You can check it out if you wish. Uh, now, Judah has a third son, Shelach, Shelach. And Shelach is too young to get married uh, when Tamar becomes a widow, and so Judah says to her, hey, uh, live over here, wait, and when my son is old enough, we, he'll, he'll marry you and produce offspring for his, children, for, his, for, for his brothers. 
But when that time comes, Judah is afraid because he's already had two <laughs> sons die who are married to this woman, and he doesn't give his third son to her in marriage. Well, she carries on a plot. Judah is off shearing sheep and his flocks in another city quite a ways off, and she goes, and uh, she dresses herself and puts a veil over her face so she won't be recognized, and she plays the role of a cultic prostitute and puts herself along the road where she knows Judah will travel, and here are these men out, <laughs> you, know, and he, you know, and Judah sees this, and uh, he goes into her. He go, you know, he doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law. And uh, he makes a promise of what he's going to pay her for the transaction. <laughs> and uh, it's a sordid story. Uh, and anyway, they agreed, and, and uh, he's going to give her a, 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 a ram. And anyway, he gives her, as a pledge, though, he gives her his signet, which he wears around his neck. It's a very valuable thing because that's how you how you made her cash checks in the ancient world. Uh, and he gives her a staff. And so she's got those two things. And anyway, they have a union, and um, Judah goes off, sends his servant with the, you know, what he's supposed to get in order to collect his signet uh, thing back and, and his staff. And his servant goes there, and he says, I can't find them. It's all gone. They're gone. She's all, it's disappeared. And... Uh, Anyway, Judah's back home, and, and someone comes and says, hey, your daughter-in-law is pregnant. And Judah says, bring her here. We will burn her at the stake. And they bring her in, and uh, she just holds up a staff <laughs> and a signet. And says, the man who owns these is the father of my child. And... Uh, yeah. And Judah, of course, <laughs> relents and probably repents. We, that part's not recorded, but it's a pretty sordid story. But God takes this woman, Tamar, and she has a pretty tragic life, really. And he makes her part of the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, you talk about rewriting the story, folks. <laughs> Yeah, and then we come to Rahab. Yeah, here it is. Let's go. Oh, I'm sorry, we should have verse. Oh, no. Uh, oh, oh, back to Genesis. Or back to, uh, yeah. Oh, back to Matthew 1. I'm sorry. Yeah, now the next verse. Three. Yeah, Tamar, here we go. And right, oh, Yeah. Father Perez uh, of Herzon, Herzon the Ram, and, oh, I, I guess we did read the, I'm sorry. Anyway, okay, we're in, we're in verse 5, and the woman's name is Rahab, and you'll recognize it because she was uh, the woman who hid the spies when they spied out Jericho. And, and the reason that works so well is she was a cultic prostitute, 
And, and, and so strangers coming into the village would be sought out or would be noticed right away, but they could go there and they were kind of, well, out, you know, out of just, hey, that was probably normal. And so anyway, that's where they'd go to hide and they tell her, look, if you'll hide us, um, we'll protect you. And she says, I know that your God is here and or is, go, is with your people and the result is going to be that our city is going to be destroyed and I'm begging you, Will you protect me? If I don't give you away, will you protect me and my family? And they said, well, we'll do it. And her faith story actually appears in the New Testament in, in James. And she does, and they rescue her, and she finds a family, and you know, she finds a husband, and she appears in the genealogy of Jesus. How did this Gentile prostitute end up in the genealogy of Jesus? Because he is a master at rewriting stories, folks. <laughs> rewriting stories. And then there's the story of Ruth. Naomi and her husband Elimelech, and they have two sons, and there's a famine in Bethlehem. That's where they're living. There's a family in Bethlehem, and, and so they move to Moab while the famine is there in order to make a living and meet their needs. And, and while they're in Moab... You know, the sons marry Moabite women. And the law said, you know, no Moabite is to ever have any inheritance among the people of Israel because the Moabites had been so cruel to the, to, to the you know, Exodus tribe when they moved through the land. No Moabite shall ever have any inheritance. But now Naomi's sons had married Moabite women and then her husband dies and her sons dies and these two Moabite women are there and Naomi tries to send them back and one of them, her name is Ruth. And Ruth says, no, I won't go back. I want to stay with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I will live. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die and I'll be buried in that same place. And Ruth goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem, and, and it's a wonderfully beautiful story in the book of Ruth. And yeah, it, it's worth a half hour it takes to read it, I'll tell you that. Um, anyway, you know, Ruth lines up with this guy named Boaz, and he marries her, and, and, uh, and Ruth becomes the great, great grandmother of King David, the greatest of the Jewish kings. God rewrote her story. Oh, then the last of the four women, the wife of Uriah. Now, you know that is, don't you? Bathsheba's her name. Actually, her name is Queen Bathsheba. <laughs> yeah. She is the mother of the second most famous Jewish king named Solomon. But Matthew wants us to know that God has really rewritten this history. You know, David had committed adultery with her in the original story. <laughs> that was part of the original story. And the result is there's a child conceived and eventually that child dies. But, but David has Uriah to try to cover his tracks, has Uriah killed on the battlefield. And, but God redeems the whole thing. And Queen Bathsheba produces the second greatest, married to the first greatest of all the Jewish kings, and gives birth to the second, King Solomon. 
And the story is simply this, my friends. If God could rewrite these stories, if God could so do that, the truth is our God can rewrite your history and my history so they shine with a new brightness and he can do that for us. Because we belong to something called the New Covenant. Say New Covenant. New Covenant. It's a really important term. Okay. Here's some more of the truth. 2 Corinthians 5.16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we know we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. And I like a translation that says, if anyone is in Christ, they, she, she, he, she, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It means the same, but I like that wording just slightly better. New creation. Do you get it? Do you get it? A whole new you. There's a famous rose window in a French cathedral in Rhines, France. The magnificent window is part of a tragic story. The cathedral was finished, construction was finished in 1910. People from all over Europe came to the cathedral to view or see that magnificent rose window, and when the sun shined outside, sunbeams filled the room. It was so beautiful, but in World War II, a bomb landed close to the church and shattered the beautiful rose window into thousands of pieces, and following the disaster, the villagers went out with with buckets and boxes, and they picked up every fragment, every splinter, every piece. And when the war ended, the villagers called a highly skilled artisan who built a new rose window using all the shattered fragments. And this restored window was now even more beautiful than the original. And the sun shining through it gave off twice the reflection of the old window. And that, my friends, is exactly what Jesus can do with the broken pieces of your life and the broken pieces of my life. Yeah. Do you understand the greatness of your redemption? It doesn't just forgive your sins. It rewrites your history. <laughs> I, I want to tell you a, a modern parable. A modern parable. The story is of a, of a woman named Sally. Uh, Sally came from difficult roots. Her father left the home and Sally's mother with four children before Sally was two years old. When Sally was five years old, her mother remarried, and Sally had three older brothers. When Sally was 11, her stepdad came into her bedroom one night and sexually molested her. She didn't know what to do. She was afraid to tell her mom. She was afraid to tell anyone. 
the abuse kept happening until her mom found out when Sally was 14. Her mom divorced her stepdad, and when Sally started to date in high school, soon boys began to take advantage of her. Sally felt so torn by her own behavior. She didn't feel it was right. She didn't know how to stop it. Sally graduated from high school, and then she moved to another city in another state and to live, to work rather, and live with her grandparents. Sally's grandparents were church-going folk, and Sally started to go to church with them. And soon Sally heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and she learned that Jesus had died on the cross to forgive her sins, to pay for her sins, and that he had risen from the dead to give her new and eternal life. Well, Sally went forward in church soon to, to give her heart and her life to Jesus. And soon afterwards, she was baptized and became a member of the church. Sally was an attractive young woman, and soon a young man named Peter began to court her, dating her. And uh, Peter knew nothing of Sally's former life and her background or where, what had happened before. And, and, and Sally didn't know how to tell him, so she just kept it quiet. After a year passed, Peter bought an engagement ring, and he presented it to Sally, and Sally looked at the ring, and she put it on, and, or he put it on her finger, and she said, yes, 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 I'll marry you, and tears are streaming down her face, and they started to plan for the wedding. Sally asked her older brother to give her away, and she still hadn't told Peter about her past. Sally didn't know what to do. She knew that Jesus had forgiven her, but she felt so conflicted. Then one night, the night before the wedding, Sally fell asleep and she had a dream. She was dressed in her white wedding dress, standing in the back of the church, and it was time for her brother to walk her forward, and she reached out her arm to, to, take, her, to take her brother's arm, and suddenly Jesus is standing there. And he says to her brother, step aside. I'm her true father, and I will give her away. Amen. And Jesus took Sally's arm, and he walked her down the aisle. And when they reached the front, Jesus took Sally's arm and put it in Peter. And he said, Peter, I give you my beautiful virgin daughter, Sally, to be your wedded wife. And Sally woke up, and she cried for two and a half hours, and when there were no more tears, the peace of Jesus came over her, and she knew her heart had been healed. See, there's no story so soiled that Jesus cannot rewrite it. There's no human so broken that Jesus cannot fully restore them. There, there's no mess so crooked that Jesus cannot straighten it out. Do you understand how great the gospel is that you have embraced? That you have embraced. I, I, I know that in this, there may be, or in the retelling of some of this, that there may be healing here for some. And I'm just going to invite you to pray with me now. And. <laughs> Stay seated for this, if you would. Just hold your hands out or put them on your lap. And I want you to close your eyes. There are things you can hear, especially from God with your eyes closed, that you can't hear with them open. And I don't know 
what part of your story needs to be redeemed, in a sense, needs to be rewritten. But Jesus has a way different copy than you do of it, and he'd like to give it to you. As we're sitting here now in this quiet, I just invite Holy Spirit, come blow across this room. Holy Spirit, come. Come and do your office work in our hearts. Just use your chair as an altar this morning. Just allow Jesus' grace and mercy to sweep over you. In the midst of this right now, I know Jesus is rewriting some stories for us in this room. Let his mercy flow. Let his mercy flow. Let his grace be told. Let it be told. There's often two sides of this kind of event, and the two sides are real simple. They're just, you know, there are people in your life you maybe need to forgive, and that's what you need to do. And if that's you right now and you've got some of that, just let it go. You know, we swim in the stream of forgiveness, and the stream runs both ways. I just invite you, if, if, there, if anybody has caused hurt in your life, if there's been a resentment, if there's been grudge, if there's been pain, just let it, let right now, Jesus in your name, and maybe it's more than one, and you just need to say Jesus in your name, and there's a couple of names maybe. And for some, it's you need to forgive yourself. What Jesus is not willing to hold on to, you don't dare hold on to, my friends. (laughs) Let go. Let go. And if there's something you feel like you need to receive forgiveness for, it's here. It is. It's here right now in this room. It's flooding over us. Come. Receive it. Receive it. His redemption is so much greater than you ever imagined. He's got one desire. He wants to restore you. He wants to restore you to the dream he has for you. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Thank you, Father. 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 We're declaring all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there are, there's a bake sale going on outside, and please afford yourself to that. Uh, I don't eat sugar, so don't buy something for me. But... <laughs> But uh, I, I, I don't know why I said that. So. <laughs> <laughs>
Hey, uh, there's going to be prayer ministers up front. If, if there's some process going on in your life and you want to work with someone on that, they would love to, they would love to minister to you. So that's available to you. And uh, yeah, it's a great day. And uh, I want you to stand up. This is my favorite part. Stand up, look up, and receive the blessing of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon his favor and his face upon you and give you his peace and his favor today and all week long in your leisure and your labor, your coming and your going for his glory. In Jesus' name I declare, amen.